In Acts chapter 20, I want you to remember with me last week, Paul was in Ephesus. And when Paul was in Ephesus, he had reasoned there in the synagogue, he had taught the word of God, he told them all about Jesus. Everybody that he came across, he told them about Jesus. And the word of God had had such an impact on the people that they, were, they, they stopped buying the idols that were sold in the temple of Artemis, or uh, her name is really Diana in our vernacular, but she um, was the temple priest or the temple goddess in Ephesus, the, the major point of pagan worship. And there were many that would actually make idols out of silver and they would sell them so that you could, you didn't have to just worship Artemis or Diana there in the temple. You could take her home with you. You could burn incense. You could make your offerings. You could be very devout. And so people had started walking with Jesus. And when you start walking with Jesus, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one that comes to the Father except through me. And so you can't worship Jesus and Diana. And they started recognizing this. And because of that, they stopped buying these idols. They stopped buying these silver cast idols. Well, that's fine, except there's a whole group of people that make their living by making idols. And so they got a little upset because all of a sudden their pocketbook wasn't being lined with cash anymore by the people buying these idols. And so they got a little upset. They started an uproar. And before you know it, they got 25,000 people gathered in this huge theater there in the city of Ephesus. And they're all chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they're upset. They're angry. And they want to know what's going on. But there were two groups there. There were the group of silversmiths that knew why they were there. And then there was a group that had gathered just because somebody had yelled, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They didn't really know why they were there. They just were there. And they were kind of like a mob. And so what I wanted to talk about real quickly before we get into this week's study is that there are some who riot against Jesus because following him could cost them more than they're willing to give up. These silversmiths were rioting against Paul because he was proclaiming Jesus and that was costing them money. And they were fine with him proclaiming Jesus, they were fine with Christianity, but when it cost them what they worshipped, their pocketbook, they were not fine with it anymore. And then there are some who riot against Jesus because they don't, not even knowing why they're doing it because they're following others who do not think for themselves. And this group that had gathered together with the silversmiths, they just gathered because they were following the crowd. And anytime there's a group of people following the crowd, they don't know what they believe. They're just in it for whatever's popular. And this group of people that gathered there to riot we're just there because there was a popular group gathering together to basically pick on these few Christian leaders. Paul wasn't out there picketing the Temple of Diana. All he was doing was investing in individual people. And the impact that he had while meeting individual people and telling them about Jesus impacted this 25,000 people plus group of people that were just trying to worship their idols. And so... Paul had a mighty impact, but no matter the reason for rejecting Jesus, there are many who will do it because they do not realize that whatever it might cost them to follow him, whether it's money or popularity, it'll be worth it in the long run. 
Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. He said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever desires, excuse me, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now we hear the word reward, and we think, hey, cool, I'm going to get something. But to those who have, in the deeds of their body, in this lifetime, rejected Jesus Christ, their reward will be eternal punishment. And to those who have received Jesus and decided to surrender their life to following Him, their reward will be eternity with he- in heaven with Him. Their reward will be, uh, to many people that have been faithful, they'll receive crowns, crowns of righteousness. But the cool thing about those rewards is that we won't necessarily go walk around heaven going, hey, look at all the crowns I got. We're going to get there, realize that the crowns that we earned have nothing to do with how faithful we were, but how faithful God was in our lives. And so we'll take those crowns and we'll give them to Jesus. We'll, we'll give them up because he gave up everything for us. We'll have no problem when we meet him face to face going, here you go, Lord. It was all you anyway, because my life before you, it was a mess. It was a messed up, jumbled, chaotic, fearful, doubtful mess. And so the Lord will receive those rewards. So that's my point. Basically, there are many who spend their entire lives clinging to what they would have to give up to follow the Lord. I don't want to follow Jesus because then I can't do all these things. Only to find out at the end that they've clinged to things that they can't keep anyway. They can't take them to heaven with them anyway. Meanwhile, they've missed out on on the one gift that's free and cannot be taken away from us. That's the reality. Following Jesus, no matter what the economy looks like, no matter what politics happen, no matter what happens in Ferguson, no matter if I get killed for believing in Jesus and going to some foreign country, no matter what ISIS can do to us or to someone that's in those countries, the reality is, They can take their life, but they can't take Jesus from them. Because Paul said to live is Christ, but to die is actually gain. It's far better that I should die, go to be with the Lord. Who would not want to rather go to heaven than stay here? Sometimes we feel like this would be better for us to stay here, but the reality is is that heaven's going to be way better than anything we can imagine. So, in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, that's the backdrop. He's been rioted against. There's been a great uh, chaotic scene happen there in Ephesus. And so Paul gets ready to move on. Verse 1 of chapter 20 says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself. He embraced them, and he departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. So after the uproar ceased... He's going to move on to Macedonia. Now, oh, the map's not... But in order to get from Ephesus to Macedonia, he has to cross the Aegean Sea 
to get over there. And once he gets to Macedonia, that's where Philippi is. Jacob, would you hit the right arrow on the computer? You guys might be like me and you might not, but I need pictures. I'm, you know, I'm, Sometimes I'm like, there needs to be an adult Bible with pictures, preferably cartoon pictures to keep my interest. But you see there is Ephesus here on the, the west coast of Asia. And he's going to travel to Macedonia. And it doesn't say why he's traveling there. But it says that after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself. He embraced them because he's getting ready to leave. In Paul's mind, he's not going to get to come back here. If anything, he's thinking, I'll come back, Lord willing. But if the Lord's not willing, then basically this is by forever until heaven. So he embraced them because he had a deep love for them, a care for them. And then he departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he went there, he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words. He came to Greece. So verse 2 says that he went up to Macedonia there in the upper left-hand corner. He basically canvassed the area. He spoke with all that were there. He encouraged them. And then he traveled down to Greece. Now that is what it says right there. It's Achaia. And out on the southern tip is where Corinthians is. The, the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, were written to the church there in Corinth. And then we see Athens on the coast. That's probably a more well-known city today. But he had canvassed the area. And then he went down to Greece. But my question came up while I was studying this. is like, well, why is he going there? He's already been there. It's not like Paul to go someplace again and again and again. Because he's got only so much time. But in order to find that out, I had to look in some other texts. So turn with me in Romans chapter 15. To the right, Acts, Romans, and then in chapter 15, we get a little bit of insight into what Paul was doing while he was traveling once again to this region. He wasn't just going on a sightseeing tour. He wasn't just going there to get high fives from all of his, his peeps. He was going there to do this, Romans chapter 15, verse 24. All right, there it is. He says to the Romans there, he says, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. And so his plan is to go way further west than he is there in Greece. He says, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I'm on my way to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So apparently somebody had contacted him and said, Paul, we've heard of all the, the problems that are going on in Jerusalem, the persecution. Because of that, many of the Christians can't get jobs there in Jerusalem. And so there's this financial bind that they're in. And so what we want you to do is to come to us. We've gathered some money together and we want to send it back with you to Jerusalem as a as a free will offering. We want you to support those who are in need. And so they, they identified, even though they were miles away, all the way over here in Achaia, but then all the way over here to Antioch and south of that, all the way down here on the lower right is Jerusalem. So even though they, they don't live anywhere close to one another, even though they probably have never met anybody from that region, 
Because of Paul going back and forth and sharing the stories of what God's doing, they have a love for those they've never even met. Christians, basically, on the other side of their world. And so because of that love, they said, we want to gather together some extra money that we've saved up, and we want to send it back to Jerusalem to support those who were basically the ones who sent the gospel to us in the first place. If the Christians in Jerusalem that got saved after Jesus was crucified, and then the persecution happened in the beginning of the book of Acts, they were spread out because of persecution. So they end up all the way as far as Achaia, and they're sharing the gospel. But they were sent out by the people that are still in Jerusalem. They were sent out by the people in Antioch. And so they're thankful. We've received eternal life because of your sacrifice. You're remaining there steadfast. We want to support you. When one part in the body of Christ hurts, we all hurt. When I hear on the news that people are being beheaded and families are losing their husbands and wives, I hurt. I pray for them. Because I'm hurt because they're hurt. It's like when you stub your big toe, you don't think, man, my toe hurts. You think, oh, that hurts all of me. And so we as the body of Christ, we have many parts, but when one part hurts, we all do. And so they're sending some financial support back to Jerusalem. Paul is canvassing the area, showing up and going, did you guys have something for Jerusalem? Not begging for money, but they're willing to give. They're saying, hey, come, come get this money from us. And then we see a little bit more of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. Chapter 16, verse 1. He writes to them at the end of the letter to the Corinthians, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as much as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters... I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So Paul here is laying down some guidelines. All these other churches they're giving willingly. He's having to deal with the first Corinthian church because they have more money than any of the other churches. And he's having to kind of exhort them and explain to them, hey, it's, it's good that you give to those who have, are less fortunate than you. So rather than me coming to your church one day, getting up there and swinging the cat and saying, God's broke and we need all your money. What I want you to do is I want you to give quietly because for you guys, you're stumbled by money. So don't ask your congregation for money, but take an offering from those that you know that are faithful. We'll collect it together. And then when I come, they won't just see me as somebody, some itinerant priest or itinerant evangelist going, hey, I need money. Because a lot of times people come through towns they do these great revivals, they ask for money afterwards, and then they leave and people are like, all they came for was our money. They don't care about us. So Paul told the Corinthians, take an offering when you're not having services, then when I come, you can give it to me quietly, and if you want somebody to go along with it to make sure that I'm actually being held accountable and I'm not just spending it for me, then you can send somebody with me, somebody that you guys choose. And so he's showing that he's willing to be accountable and that also explains, back here in Acts chapter 20, in verse 3, 
where it says there, he stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater, he starts listing these people. They're very hard to say their names. And since I went to Farmington schools, I can't pronounce them. It says, and Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus, Secondus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, Timothy and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. So this list of names isn't just some random people that said, hey, we want to go with you, Paul. But they're actually representatives from the churches that he's gathered this collection from that are going to go with him as eyewitnesses to say, so they can go back to their church and say, hey, that money, it went directly to the need that we saw. Your money didn't get lost in the, in the shuffle. It didn't just line somebody's pockets. It didn't get lost in administration fees. It went directly to the need that you guys saw. And so their representatives could go back to their churches and go, hey, all the money we gave, none of it was in vain. God's using it in Jerusalem just like we had a heart to give. And so I love that about Paul. But it also says there in verse 3 that they stayed there in three months and when the Jews plotted against him, he was about to sail to Syria. So he's in Greece over there in Achaia and he's wanting to go back to Jerusalem for Passover. Now I'm no map scholar, I'm no geography, I'm not a travel specialist, but it seems to me that the shortest distance between two places is a straight line, right? I mean, we want to go to Springfield, we got to drive all over the place to get there. We got to go to 44, we got to go way south and go west. We'd rather just, you know, go as the crow flies and just go straight, but there seems to be some hills and a lack of roads. Well, Paul He's not looking to take the long way. He's going to get on a ship and he's going to sail all the way to Jerusalem, straight line. Except here's a problem. At this time, every other Jew that lives in the area is also going to Jerusalem. And the Jews hate Paul. Those that have not received Jesus that are still practicing Jews, they're going to go to worship in Jerusalem, but they hate Paul to the point that they've rioted against him. If you remember with me in Thessalonia, up here on the coast, there was actually a group that rioted against him and he had to leave town. In Iconium, over here, there was a group that wanted to stone him. And so Paul, leaving from Greece here, he seeks to travel there, but during the feast, what they had was this pilgrimage of the Jews. They would all travel from all the regions they lived in to go directly to Jerusalem to worship because that was the one place in Judaism to worship God. They wanted to go make their offering. So they would sail there. They'd have like shuttles, basically a shuttle bus, like we would have if there was a big group down here that wanted to go to a concert in St. Louis. Why everybody drives separate cars? Let's get together a big bus, travel up there. So because they're doing that anyway, Paul would have gotten on one of those ships. It's not like they had a whole bunch of ships that were going. But the problem is, is that ship is full of Jews that hate Paul. So it says there in verse 3, when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. <laughs> hey, I could get killed on this ship. I can't just like jump off and swim away. They're going to have me captive, backed in the corner. So rather than getting on the ship, I'll just 
I guess I'll take the long way. Take the long way home. <laughs> he goes up the coast. He goes to Macedonia. And then he spends some time up there. And then he takes the ship to Troas. And he takes the long way because otherwise he's going to die. And then he can't take the offering to J Jerusalem. So we begin there again in verse 5. These men that were with Paul, they went ahead and they waited for them at Troas. So they took a ship. They went up to Troas while Paul had to take the long way to avoid dying. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. So Paul's been trying to get back to Jerusalem for Passover. And it says there that he didn't make it. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, which is Passover. And in five days, we joined them at Troas. Uh, just a little note, when Paul left Troas to go to Macedonia, it took two days. To sail back from Philippi to Troas took five days. And this makes sense. If you've ever flown anywhere, sometimes it takes longer because of the jet stream. Well, they're sailing, so they need the winds. So it would make sense that it would take a longer time. But that's just trivia. <laughs> but they stayed there in Troas for seven days. Now on the first day of the week, verse 7, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So this is the first day of the week. It's Sunday. They're gathering together. They're in this upper room and they're, they're, they're having a meal together. That's what the early church would do. They would get together. They'd have a meal. They would study God's word. Someone would get up and speak. They would teach about Jesus and life living, following him. And they would fellowship together, just like we do on a Sunday morning. Now, there are some denominations that say, well, no, we got to worship just like they did, you know, in, in Judaism. You got to do it on the Sabbath. But there's a problem with that. The Sabbath is actually Saturday. So the question becomes, well, why do we, what started a tradition of worshiping on Sunday rather than Saturday? Well, in all reality, there's really nothing in the Bible that says we have to gather on Sunday. The only reason I believe that the early church gathered on Sunday was because Jesus was, he was crucified on Friday. And then on the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he rose again. So we worship on the first day of the week to celebrate the new beginning, life after death, the resurrection. And so these early Christians, this is the first time that we have in scripture that they gathered on the first day of the week. Paul ready to depart the next day. He was ready to get back to Jerusalem still. They'd been there a week and he spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So in light of this passage, we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to teach you the guys the Bible until midnight. I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, so he, he taught them until midnight. But why, did, why in the world would you have a Bible study all the way till midnight? It doesn't say when they started, but it says that he went until midnight. So why would they do that? Well, remember, Paul's getting ready to leave. He doesn't know that he'll ever come back to this place. Have you ever gotten together with family that you hardly ever see, that you actually do like, and you're sitting there in the room with them, and you're getting ready to leave, and it's like, I don't know when I'll see you again. And so there's kind of this lingering, like, well, I guess I'm going to go now, but I, you know, I really don't want to go because you guys are leaving. You know? And so there's this whole, I want to say all the things to you guys that I could say that God's laid on my heart because I don't know if I'll ever get to see you again. 
I don't know if I'll ever get to share God's heart through me to you guys again. And so he just went really long because he had lots of stuff to say. He wanted to make sure that they were built up and ready to deal with whatever life would throw at them. He wanted to teach them all the things that God had taught him. And so as he's doing this, it says that he talked till midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. Now imagine that, a young man sitting in a Bible study, spent all the way till midnight, getting a little sleepy, he's getting a little bored, Paul's going on and on and on, and says he, he was very sleepy. And then it says he was overcome by sleep. You ever been sitting, doing anything, maybe sitting in your living room, and you just, you're just tired, the day's been long, and you're just overcome by sleep, and then somebody goes, what are you doing? Because you fell asleep, and they caught you snoring, and, and you're completely surprised, because you didn't plan on going to sleep, you were overcome by it. Well, that's what's happened to him. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story, and he was taken up dead. Now, Paul, I've read some of his letters, read all of them, he gets a little windy. So, when a young man falls asleep while he's teaching, I don't think he was that surprised. I think he was probably like, well, another one fell asleep. Go figure, you know. But then, this young man who's sitting in this window, it says that he was overcome with sleep, and then because he was overcome with sleep, he fell down out of the window. So it seems that he was actually sitting in the window. Now, number one, that's dumb to sit in a window that you can fall out of, especially when you're sleeping. But at the same time, I've done similar things. You ever sit in a classroom and you tip your chair back? Well, maybe not some of you guys willing to admit it, but when I was younger, I would sit in my classes and I always tip my chair back. And there would always be somebody that knew better than me, that knew I didn't have any balance, I would say, hey, you don't want to do that, you're going to fall. And I'm always like, of course, no, I won't. I'll be fine. Well, one time I was doing that physics class, I ate it. I mean, I, took, I hit my head on the table, my chair went out from under me, just laying there. And it wouldn't have been a big deal, except there was only six of us in the class. So you don't go unnoticed, you know. And so that's what's happened here. He's completely disrupted the service uh, because he's fallen out of the window, but he's dead. What in the world? This is the worst thing that could possibly happen in a Bible study. Imagine if we're sitting here, we've got a group of people, somebody sitting in the back starts having a heart attack and dies. That doesn't really bode well for people wanting to come back. Imagine if you got some visitors and somebody just dies while you're having service. They go, man, there's something going on there. That's not good. But Paul doesn't miss a wink. He actually just jumps up, verse 10. He goes downstairs he falls on him, embraces him, and then he says something that blows me away. To those that are gathered around, no doubt kind of trying to figure out what's going on, he says, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is still in him. Now imagine the commotion. They're having this Bible study upstairs inside a building. But this young man hasn't fallen down and died inside. He's fallen outside of the building into the street. He's dead. Can you imagine the people that would gawk and just show up to see what in the world just happened? Somebody fighting upstairs? Oh, it's those Christians. Who knows what they're up to? Those Jesus people. But then this man falls. Paul runs down there. He doesn't panic. It doesn't, he seems like he's just, 
He's totally calm and in control. And I say that because of what he says. He says, don't worry about this. His life's still in him. Now, I've been to prayer meetings where I know somebody's sick. Somebody, you know, has lost a family member and we're praying for that family. But I've never once heard somebody say, hey, why don't we pray that this person be rise back? That they wouldn't be dead anymore. I've never heard that. We all kind of come to grips with it. We go, well, it was their time. We trust the Lord. I guess we need to have a few, you know, it's, it's time for them to go home. But Paul here, he lays on him. This seems kind of weird to us, but no doubt he's thinking of Elijah. Elijah one time was in the circumstance where somebody called him. They said, hey, my son has died. And so Elijah lays down on his body. Who knows why? Perhaps to transfer body heat. Uh, I don't know. But he prays for him while prostrate, laying down on this body, and then that person came to act alive. Well, Paul's an Old Testament scholar, and he's not looking for a form or fashion. He's just seeing, hey, Elijah did it. It's worth a try. And so he does this. He says, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And then when he came up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. So they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Now, Luke says this in a funny way. He always says it in the diminutive, which just mainly, mainly to me says he says it backwards. You know, it's like when I say I enjoyed a meal, I say, wow, that food didn't suck. Now, that's not really the way to tell your wife that, hey, I really, that was awesome. You know, she would much rather hear that was awesome. But he says they were not a little comforted, which just basically means they were really stoked. They were comforted. This is awesome. Hey, so you're telling me we're following a God that, if I get hurt, God could totally raise me from the dead. They're reminded why they're gathered. They're reminded that they're gathered to worship a God who gives life. Not just some old dusty book that we read, but God's real and he's powerful. And he's able to raise people from the dead. And so because of this, it seems like this Bible study got a shot in the arm. They were sitting there, Paul had been droning on all day. They were listening, though, all the way to midnight. And then at a certain point, it seems like it got late, people were getting sleepy, and this boy falls out the window. And just at that moment where you think, wow, God's, he's not in control. I mean, this is the worst thing that can happen into a Bible study. Right there, in their moment of despair, God shows up and blesses the, their socks off. And he raises this young man from the dead, and then it says there, Verse 11, when he had come up and broken bread, they, they continued, they ate some more, and they talked a long while, even till daybreak, and he departed. So it seems that not only were the people willing to continue listening, to continue fellowshipping, they were excited, but they sat there and listened to Paul for hours longer. They were like, wow, you know, Paul must really know what he's talking about. The things that he's teaching us, these aren't just words, but he's putting them into practice. He really trusts the Lord. Maybe we ought to listen to him a little while longer. And so I love that. So verse 13, Then we went ahead to the ship. We sailed to Assos. They're intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. To go on foot. So he's going to travel there from Troas. He's going to go down a little bit further. 
And, uh, and we took him on board there at Middleene. So that's that little coastal town there. Uh, their ship keeps going and he joins them there at Middleene. And then we sailed from there and the next day came opposite Chios or Chios or Chirios. And the following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregillium. And the next day we came to Miletus for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. Now, when we began reading this morning, he was at Ephesus and he left there. But he passes, he sails past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he missed Passover, but there's another feast that he can make 50 days later called Pentecost. And that's the day that they celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so that's 50 days after Jesus' resurrection and his death. And so Paul has still got it in his mind to get to Jerusalem to bring that offering. But in the meantime, what I wanted to focus on this morning was what will it take for us to be awakened from our slumber, to be awakened from our sleepiness in our Christian faith. God here, at the very least, allows this young man, Eutychus, probably Jacob's age here, just a teen, his word, the word that he uses in the passage there, a young man it has a specific Greek meaning, and it's, it's about your age, Jacob. And basically what happens is, this young man is allowed in the middle of a Bible study to fall out of the building. And when he dies, God uses this ridiculous situation to wake up the, not only him, to resurrect him, but to wake up all those who are sitting in the Bible study. And I wonder how many people that were outside that saw this young man come back to life, came back in and joined them for that Bible study awakened, opened their eyes to the, the reality of the power of God and, and His majesty and His ability to just change lives drastically. So I wonder how many people came back inside after seeing that miracle and said, I want to know the God that performed that miracle. What will it take in the lives of the people that you know for them to get just a glimpse of the power of God? What kind of changed lives do we have sitting under the Bible teaching and under the, the, the Word of God, what kind of changes have happened in your lives that will bring people out of their sleep, out of their slumber? This life has a way of taking the lives that God's given us as disciples of Jesus and lulling us to sleep to the point where we don't care about much anymore. But the reality is that God has, he has real purposes for our lives and He doesn't want us to live lives that are sleepy anymore. He wants us to live like we've been brought alive, resurrected by the power of God, to live bold, witness lives, to share Jesus with as many people as possible. And he told the disciples, he said, signs and wonders will follow those who believe me. We shouldn't follow after signs and wonders. But there are times in the Christian life where God allows us to be the touch point for somebody to be healed, for somebody to be you know, just taken care of in a way that they've never experienced the love of God before. We need to be open to those things, not despising them, but looking for God to give us opportunities to speak, opportunities to say, hey, it wasn't me, it was Jesus that did this. And Paul took advantage of this. And it doesn't say that after the guy was raised from the dead, he just, you know, he's like, okay, guys, let's go to bed. 
No, he said, I'm going to take advantage of this miracle that God's given. I'm going to teach these people, our God's real, and we need to be very diligent in following him. And then after that, he left. He went on his way. That was his last words to these people. And he, he didn't despise the fact that he didn't get to sleep that night. As a matter of fact, he was excited. Hey, God gave me another opportunity. And then he went upon his merry way. He, he got back to his travel schedule. But he was never too busy to make sure that he took time on the Sabbath to teach. Paul had a purpose to get back to Jerusalem. He was taking money back to people that were poor. But he knew in the midst of his travel, in the midst of his busyness, in the midst of his plans, that if he would just take a moment on the Sabbath and worship God, that whatever time he gave up on the Sabbath, God would multiply his time after that. He would multiply whatever he had given up. You can't outgive God. An hour on a Sunday, he'll give you more than that. He'll make your time more effective later. And so I love that about Paul. He took advantage of the opportunities God gave him. And next week, what we're going to see is though he sailed past Ephesus, he went to a place called Miletus, and we're going to see him give his first address, not preaching the gospel, but teaching Christians that have already been saved. And he's going to teach the Ephesian elders. He didn't want to go to Ephesus because it was a very large city. He didn't have time to see everybody. So rather than doing that, he went to Miletus and he called for the Ephesian elders of the church. Hey, come meet me down here. We're going to have a little retreat. And I want to impart to you guys some wisdom before I may never see you again. So Paul's kind of on his farewell tour. This isn't like the Eagles where they go on the Hell Freezes Over tour and they come back and they do another tour. This is Paul saying, hey, I'm probably not going to be back. God keeps testifying that in every city, if I go to Jerusalem, I'm not going to leave there unless I'm in chains. And the rest of Paul's life, he's going to be bound. He's going to be in literal prison shackles. He's going to go to trial after trial. So before he's done that, he wants to take the freedom that God has given him at this point in his life and he wants to use it in a very intentional way to invest in these Ephesian elders. And then he departs from there. So next week we'll get to study what he had to say to them. Paul's last words to leaders that were, um, that were leading the church there in Ephesus. So let's pray. Father, thank you for every moment that you give us. We oftentimes, and I was convicted about this this week, we oftentimes are like the people that James writes about. We boast about what we're going to do tomorrow, what next week we're going to do, what we're going to have as far as our plans for the holidays. And yet, we not being God, we don't know if we have tomorrow. So Lord, in our lives, give us the ability to see our lives through your lives as opportunities. Help us to take advantage of the days that we have, of the hours, of the moments that we have. Lord, help us not to waste moments thinking that tomorrow we'll have plenty. Thank you for Paul that took advantage of his Sabbath day to worship and to celebrate your power, to celebrate his new life, to teach those that would listen. And Father, thank you for busting into their Bible study and, and raising somebody from the dead and perhaps even opening the eyes of many unbelievers through that miracle. Father, my desire is that you would bust into our everyday, ordinary lives where we've kind of calculated what you can and cannot do and do the miraculous. 
And Father, help our lives to be bold testimonies of the changes that you've made to us, not just in our homes, but in our community. And may we, as we're faithful to obey you in all things, to be thankful in all things, may we be those who witness to those that see our lives. May they see your son Jesus living through us. And as a result, may you save souls. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. Thank you for these that are willing to sit. Thank you that I'm not teaching till midnight. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, uh, that you give us what we need. And I pray that as we are like those dried sponges, because we live in this dry world, that you would take the water of your word and start to pour it just little by little on our lives. And as you do, Lord, may we be have the capacity and the ability to soak up every little bit. And as we do, Lord, May our lives splash out on those that need you, on those that need cleansing. May we be exactly what you've called us to be, salt and light. In Jesus' name, amen.